logically. Verse 22 is talking about God's judgment. You can't bring someone to court for their anger in their heart. But God knows the heart. He has the evidence. He convicts us. We are guilty. The angry heart is as much in danger of the judgment of God as the murderous heart is in danger of the judgment of the earthly court. Let me say that again. The angry heart is as much in danger of the judgment of God as the murderous hand is in danger of the earthly court. Jesus is saying you can commit the sin of murder before you commit the act of murder. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, the, the Apostle John repeats this teaching when he says, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And brother or sister here could refer to other Christians, and it does apply to other Christians, but more likely it applies to anybody who we are in any kind of social relationship with. God's people in God's kingdom are not to be angry in this way. Now, some of you may uh, object to this and say, well, Jesus was angry, wasn't he? Jesus went into the temple and he turned the tables over. He was angry. And in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, we read, in your anger, do not sin. So there must be times where anger is right. So let's compare then scripture with scripture and say, yes, there are times where anger is, is right, when it's talking about righteous anger. That's not what Jesus means here, obviously. This obviously isn't righteous anger that Jesus is talking about. This is murder. And when there is sin and injustice, it should make us angry. Jesus was angry because of sin and because of injustice. But if we are honest with ourselves, most of our anger is not because of sin and injustice, is it? But it's because we don't get our own way. If you were to, to list all the times you've been angry, and you would cross off all the times where you could claim that it was righteous anger, the list wouldn't it be, would still be pretty long, wouldn't it? And if we're even more honest with ourselves, even when our anger is at sin and injustice, even that anger is in some way tainted with sinful anger or pride. What is the anger that Jesus is talking of here? This is the anger that's an attitude of the heart that expresses itself in our actions, the extreme end of which is physical murder. We saw that in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was angry. It began in his heart. He was jealous of his brother Abel. And that anger that festered in his heart spread and became physical murder. But the sin of murder didn't happen just when he committed the physical act. It began when he was angry in his heart. And notice, if you read it back, notice that in that passage, God speaks to Cain not just after he physically murdered. He spoke to Cain when he was angry, when it was in his heart. 
Anger is pride, it's malice, it's hatred, it is vanity against other people. And we know what it's like to be angry, don't we? We know that blood pumping, fist clenching, shouting, hitting, screaming, all those things. We know what it's like because we've all been there, haven't we? But Jesus goes further. Anger and thus murder is not even just our attitude. It's not just in our hearts. It is even the words that reflect the attitude. There's two uh, phrases he uses here. Raka and you fool. Now raka is a word of scorn or contempt. Some have translated it literally as empty head. It's said to someone who you think is, is stupid. It attacks a person's intellect. And it comes from pride, arrogance, and snobbery. Where we think we are better than somebody else. How easy it is to get angry with people who are different from us. Who have different values to us. Who are from a different social background to us. Have you ever given someone that dirty look of contempt? Have you ever told anyone how stupid they are? Have you ever told anyone just to to go away because you just don't like them? Or because you're just a snob? Jesus says this is murder. It's murder. The other phrase is, you fool. Now, while Raka insults the intelligence, you fool uh, cast aspersion on someone's character. In the Bible, a fool is someone who is godless. And because it's someone who is godless, someone away from God, it's the equivalent of us saying to someone, go to hell. This comes in the form of slander, When we say things about people that are exaggerated or not true to make them look bad. It comes in the form of gossiping. It comes in the form of enjoying watching someone fall because we don't like them. Who of us has never done those things? Anger, raka, you fool are all murder. They're all murder. They're not different levels of sin or murder, but they're examples of it. And the same is true with the punishments. We're not supposed to read this legally and line these things up and say, okay, if I've been angry in my heart, that means uh, I'm subject to the judgment of capital punishment. And if I've said raka, then I go to court. And if I say you fool, well, then I go to hell. To interpret it that way is to be exactly like the Pharisees and try and say, well, I've never said you fall, I'll just say something else. No, rather, Jesus is saying, anger is murder and God will judge it. And hell is the most severe of judgment. And the purpose that he's saying that is to say this, this is so serious that anger leads to hell. Because murder leads to to hell. And in Revelation chapter 21, murderers are among those who will be cast into the lake of fire. God takes this very seriously. Why is it so serious? Well, the reason murder is so serious is because it is against the image of God. 
Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 uh, is a place in the Bible where, the, the, where capital punishment was first instituted by God. God says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. God takes it so seriously because we are made in his image. And so we do harm to the image of God when we commit murder. Well, there are just so many ways that we can apply this in our lives, aren't there? Generally, we are sinfully angry when we worship the idol of my rights. We worship the idol of my rights. What I want. My kingdom. My way. When we worship my way and my rights, that's what gives rise to anger. So, for example, we talked earlier of abortion and euthanasia. What are, what are the justifications we're given? It's my right to do what I want with my body. The right, the right to choose or the right to die. It's about rights, isn't it? My rights. All murder, including in the heart, is about my rights. We can be loving and pleasant people until someone gets in our way. Just get in a car and drive, yeah? <laughs> we can drive and we can be the most loving people in the world until someone cuts us up or there's someone chugging along at 20 miles an hour in a 40 zone and you want to be somewhere. They get in our way and so we're angry. Anger happens when what we perceive is our rights are infringed in some way. Think about the home. Husbands and wives, how often do we commit murder because our spouse isn't serving our kingdom? You're not doing what I want to do. And so there's anger. What about children? No child gets angry when they get given all they want, do they? Can I stay up till midnight all week this week? Yes, of course you can. Can I have chips and cake every night this week? Why, sure, yes. You can have chips and cake any time you want. Can I have a new toy every single day during the summer holidays? Yes, and you can have any toy that you want to have. But what happens when you hear, no. When you don't get your way, well then, well, it's not fair. Everyone else gets to do this. And the doors can slam and, and so on and so forth. This is murder against your parents. Did you know that? Jesus says this is murder. But parents, let's not pretend that we're all sweetness and light. How much anger at our children is not righteous anger at all, but it's because they are really getting in the way of what we want to do. You know, when you have children, things change, don't they? You can't do all the things you used to be able to do. They get in your way. Your house isn't what it used to be. Things get broken. Life is disrupted in more ways than you can count. How much anger is because of these things rather than because our children have actually sinned? How much anger is completely out of proportion to what has actually happened? What about the fact that our children imitate what they see in us. How much anger in our children really has stemmed from anger within us? 
It's a challenge, isn't it, for all of us? What about at work? How many colleagues have you murdered because they don't do things the way that you think they should be done? How much racker and by fool have you been involved with at work in gossiping about colleagues, telling them they're stupid, or speaking about how stupid they are when they're not there, laughing at them, and so on? And what about at church? The church is an amazing place in the sense that we are a family with people who would otherwise never associate with one another. But this can cause friction, can't it? How easily we can be so angry with each other when we feel that our rights have been infringed and our personal kingdom has been invaded by someone else. Who do they think they are? And so on and so forth. And when thinking of insults and words of anger, we need to be especially careful these days, don't we, on social media. In our country... We laugh at our American cousins at how they can give out guns like, like sweets and say, well, no wonder they have so much murder over there because they all have guns. Well, social media is the word, the tongue murder equivalent of having a gun, isn't it? How easy it is to just spout off angry comments about somebody that we don't even know on Facebook or on Twitter and so forth. Even if we don't like a celebrity or a politician, we need to be careful about what we say to them on Twitter, for example. Even the worst of politicians are people made in the image of God. And it is a sin, the sin of murder, to be spouting off nasty things about them. That's not to say we shouldn't speak out against evil. Of course we should. But we must be careful about how we attack a person. And we must look at our hearts and find out where they are as we're giving off our opinions on social media. How many of us now, when we look at Jesus' definition of murder, can say, this has nothing to do with me? This has no association with me. Murderers, well, they're just those kind of people over there. As we look at this command, as we look at what Jesus says murder is, it makes us look at it in a whole new way, doesn't it? The big point Jesus makes is this. The Old Testament law forbidding murder must not be thought of being met when no blood has been shed. The law points to the fundamental problem of people's anger in the heart. And this is where The rubber hits the road. The judgment for actual murder hangs over the angry too. The judgment for actual murder hangs over the angry too. And when we have looked at just a few examples of what anger is in our lives, it's not much of a murder mystery, is it? Because all of us can say, I'm guilty. So what can we do? Well, if you're not a Christian, the answer is not very much at all, really. The problem with treating the Sermon on the Mount as a code of moral ethics is seen in this very first example of murder, isn't it? When we understand what this really means, there's no way we can ever say that I I, I meet this criteria. And there's not even any way we can really say 
that in our own strength, I can in the future meet this criteria. We can't just make a resolution and say, well, I'm I'm never going to be angry ever again. As I say, we just get in the car and we probably break it, don't we? However, there is is good news. The first beatitude, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you are in the place of being flawed from verses 21 and 22, that's a good place to be. Because when you're flawed and you say, I cannot do this, I am guilty, we come to God and we say, there's nothing I can do. And we ask God for forgiveness. And Jesus Christ, who who never murdered, not even in the heart, he was murdered. As he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sin. To remove the danger of hellfire for all of us forever. And so when we come to God and ask him for forgiveness, we say, God, there's nothing I can do. I am a murderer. He forgives us of our sins, and he gives us a new heart, so that now when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we can look at it in a whole new way. And this is one thing I want us to understand from this teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're going to come back to week after week. You see, when Jesus says, you shall not, it is more than a command. It is actually a promise. You see, the Ten Commandments were a covenant, a bit like a marriage vow. And when we have a new heart given to us, the Bible teaches us that Jesus writes his law on our hearts. So when he says to the Christian, you shall not murder, we shouldn't think of it like this. Oh, Okay, I better not get angry because God is going to be really upset with that. He'll be righteously angry with me if I'm angry. No, we don't look at it like that. We look at it in a different way. When we're tempted with anger, when when these feelings rise up, we claim the promise. We say, no, God has said to me, you shall not murder. I don't have to be like this anymore because I am a Christian. God has changed my heart. I'm not going to murder anymore. We don't look at it in a really uh, miserable way and say, well, I I really want to be angry with this person, but I'm not going to. We look at it in a new way. We say, no, this is a promise for my life. God's promised me you shall not murder anymore. Isn't that much more of a wonderful way of looking at this than just, oh, I better not do it. You see, this is a promise. And every one of these regarding adultery and all the other ones, they are promises for us. You are not going to be like this anymore because I've changed your heart. And so when we're looking at this as a Christian, we're not just looking at what not to do. Jesus tells us what to do instead. And the kingdom application of you shall not murder, the radical way that we live differently is reconciliation. And that is verses 23 to 26. That's the kingdom application. You shall not murder. That includes anger. Rather, Christians are like this. This is what it really means not to murder. The positive side, not just the negative. The positive side. Because verse 23 begins with, therefore. So he says, you shall not murder. Murder includes anger. Murder includes insults. Murder results in hellfire. This is so serious. So therefore, instead of being angry and 
an insult, using insulting words. Instead of that, here are two illustrations that show that murder is more than just keep calm and count to ten. Okay? Two illustrations. Now, these illustrations are not a new law that Jesus is instituting about sacrifices and not going to court. They are illustrations of a deeper truth regarding the importance of reconciliation. And the first illustration, number one, teaches this. Reconciliation is necessary. Reconciliation is necessary. Look at verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So the picture here is of an offering, of an animal sacrifice that would have been at the temple in Jerusalem and undertaken by a priest. They would bring the animal. They would explain what the sacrifice was they were going to make could have been all sorts of thanksgiving sacrifice, an atonement sacrifice, all sorts of things. The priest would sacrifice the animal at the temple. Now from where Jesus was teaching this sermon, it was about a 70 to 80 mile walk to get to the temple at Jerusalem. And it was therefore only undertaken on occasion. So if they were at the temple, they'd gone 80 miles, 70, 80 miles to get there, they'd brought their animal, they were going to offer the sacrifice... Jesus says, if while you're there, after having gone all that way and bought your animal, you remember that there is somebody that you are not reconciled with, that there's someone that's even angry with you. You might not be angry with them, but they are angry with you. Leave the gift and go back and be reconciled and then come back and offer the gift. All of a sudden, that that 70 or 80 mile journey has got a lot further, hasn't it? Because they've got to go back be reconciled, and then come back again. But you see the point. Reconciliation is so important that we cannot truly worship God if we're not reconciled with someone who is angry with us. Not just if we're angry with them, but if they are angry with us. It's better to go and sort it out than to be at the altar and offer the sacrifice. Because the sacrifice isn't worth anything. Because we're not reconciled. God says here, reconciliation comes before sacrifice. Now we didn't offer animal sacrifices, do we? So how does this apply to us? Well, each Sunday we offer the sacrifice of praise at church, don't we? We have communion services. We're not offering a sacrifice at the table as such, but we come... And we worship together and remember what Christ has done. We have prayer meetings. We have private times of devotion, praying to God. Whatever form of worship it is, Jesus is saying, your worship is not worship if you are angry with someone or they are angry with you and you know about it and you're here. Jesus says, stop, go and be reconciled. I mean, this is so applicable on a Sunday morning, isn't it? I am convinced that Christians are more attacked on a Sunday morning than at any other time in the week. I find it heaps easier to get our family to school at 9am than to church at 10.45. And I know that's true for others too. How often do we come to church 
having had an argument with our spouse or with our children, and we've had that all the way to church, and we come in and we just sing away. Jesus says, before you get through those doors, before you even get out the car, make things right. Because if you're coming, that, what's that, that singing is not worship. If you're singing, but really you know that something's not right here. Now it's worthwhile mentioning a couple of things so that we don't take what's an illustration further than we should. First of all, strictly speaking, Jesus is saying it's better to get right with someone than to come to church. But at the same time, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 tells us, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So rather than saying, okay, um, pretend it's Monday and you've had an argument, you don't think, well, okay, I'm going to wait till Sunday and I won't go to church and then I'm going to go be reconciled. Get reconciled right away. We'll see in a minute, in the next illustration, reconciliation is urgent. But the six days that are not Sunday where you could be reconciled, but if you happen to be here on a Sunday and it's then it comes to mind, well, of course, go and be reconciled. But don't plan not to come to church or prayer meeting. Rather, plan right away to be reconciled. And secondly, sometimes reconciliation is just not possible. We can attempt it, we can pray for it, we can have the heart for it. But we can't not come to church until someone that doesn't want to forgive us, forgives us. Rather, we have to just do all we can to be reconciled. And if they don't want to be, we've done what we can. We need to be practical about this. But, in the sense of the church, if a Christian asks for forgiveness, we are bound to forgive them. We have to. And we have to be reconciled. So the first illustration, in obeying the command not to murder, reconciliation is necessary. And then we come to a second illustration. And this is, reconciliation is urgent. It's urgent. Look at verses 25 and 26. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So in this illustration, a man has gotten himself into debt. And the man who he's in debt to, he owes money, is his adversary. And the adversary is taking him to court. Now Jesus is saying here, it is better if you can settle with the man out of court quickly, because if it goes to court, a few things will happen. And this is the procedure, okay? When they went to court, the debtor would, take the, the, would, would go to court and face the judge. And the judge at the court would decide on their guilt. Are you guilty of being in debt? Yes. And then the judge would say, this is how much you owe. You have to pay this back. And then the judge would pass the case on to the officer. And the officer would then try and get payment of the debt from the debtor. And if the debtor could not pay the debt, they would get thrown into debtor's prison. Now this would happen even in our own country, even up in the Victorian ages. You, if you read any of um, uh, stories in Victorian times, you can see people in debtor's prison. And that happened up until quite recently. And that's what's going on here. And the problem was, when you were thrown into prison, you were there until you paid it back. How could you pay it back? Either someone bailed you out, 
or you've, you're there forever until you've paid, as Jesus says, the, uh, the, the, the last penny. Now, this is good legal advice, isn't it? Yes, it's better to sell out of court if you can. But Jesus' point isn't to give us good legal advice. The point is, it is better to be reconciled quickly before the situation gets out of control. Anger that is left unresolved gets worse and worse. It is a poison that kills and ruins lives. We have a phrase, uh, nip it in the bud. And that's the point. Deal with it urgently, quickly. Because if it's left to fester, it gets worse and worse. John Calvin uh, says this on these verses, that we should put a bridle on our own greed and be ready to settle, even at our own loss, rather than pursue our rights with unyielding energy. Notice Calvin uses the phrase pursuing our rights, which is behind all anger. Rather than doing what we, want, what we feel is our rights, Jesus says it's better to reconcile quickly. And in this illustration, this quick reconciliation may end up costing the person more. Who knows? They might have gone to court and the judge might have said it's less. The point is, even at your own loss, even when it's painful for you, reconcile quickly. The opposite to murder, which is demanding our rights, is to do good to those who tread on our rights. That's the way of the kingdom. To do good to those who tread on our rights. And we see this most clearly in the king of the kingdom. Jesus Christ had the right to be worshipped. The right to be worshipped. But he was being murdered. He died for his murderers and on the cross he said, Father, forgive them. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he committed no sin. He was never a murderer. No deceit was found in his mouth. He never insulted anybody. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. As we examine Jesus Christ's whodunit, it is not much of a mystery, is it? We have all committed murder. But with new hearts, we can live the kingdom life that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And in doing so, we can live out the marvellous promise of God. You shall not commit murder. Well, I was going to, we're going to sing before the table, but actually time has gone. So I think we're going to come around the Lord's table now and we'll sing our final song afterwards if that's okay. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to come to the table, but before we, we do that, I think it's good that we have uh, a time of silence. Uh, I've been convicted by these words of Jesus. They're they, 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 as he intends, they get to our hearts, don't they? And so before we come to the Lord's table, let us just spend some time in silent prayer, prayer of confession. I think we all need to confess to God the anger in our hearts. And then after we've had a time of silence, I'll pray, and then we'll come to 
uh, the table. So let's, let's pray.